Welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox. Welcome to another edition of Wander with Andrew Wilcox. My guest today is Colleen Cassidy St. Clair. She's a professor of biological sciences at the University of Alberta, and she's currently involved in a huge project with the Urban Wildlife Information Network. It sounds like it's going to be uh, some interesting results uh, for how we look at wildlife and living in uh our area and how they intersect with our regular life in the urban areas. So first off, uh, Colleen, thank you for being on the show. You're welcome, Andrew. Um, can you give us, uh, can you give our listeners a quick overview of your story and your training? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll back up a few years. Um, you acknowledged already that this, this thing I've just embarked upon is monitoring urban wildlife. So maybe it's appropriate to say where and how I, I got interested in that. I grew up here in Edmonton and uh, enjoyed, you know, nature in the way most kids do. But maybe unlike kids, lots of places had access to this river valley that that Alberta is a bit famous for, in Edmonton in particular. And uh, it was when I was an undergrad at U of A doing a science degree, taking uh, some classes I didn't enjoy very much, <laughs> that I missed them occasionally to go ride my bike in the river valley. And that's when I discovered that this river valley is full of trails that go for kilometers in uh, both directions from the university. And I realized how much I loved being outside and uh, just watching animals and um, noticing stuff about nature. At about the same time, I was learning in, in first-year courses that actually you, you could have a career doing stuff like that. So I kind of followed my nose. It, it wasn't really a plan to become a biologist and certainly not a biology professor at, at the stage of, of just um, realizing this, this love I had of the biodiversity right here in our urban river valley. But it sort of evolved over time and I, I went off later to do some graduate training in, in New Zealand and the US. I was uh, especially interested in penguins for some quirky reason. So that's what I studied for those degrees, and, and those took me to some really incredible um, sub-Antarctic islands where I really became more aware that uh, some places, some kinds of natural environments are already pretty imperiled, and some really glorious things. And through subsequent sort of training and research opportunities that have included lots of protected areas in Canada and beyond, and lots of... Uh, came back to work at the U of A starting in 1998 as a professor. And I've made uh, studies of the River Valley and biodiversity there and conservation there, uh, a part of that program in the years since. So this latest thing is, um, I guess, a little bit of a formalization of that and a generalization of that interest to anything we might find in the River Valley. Um, for the last few years, I've been studying urban coyotes um, in this River Valley and in this city. And uh, that's part of what's helped me to realize there's a lot of other species that are deserving of some attention. So that's it. And then, well, uh, so what is the Urban Wildlife Information Network? Yeah, it's a mouthful is one thing it is. Yeah. It is uh, a partnership that began in Chicago, the Lincoln Park Zoo. It has, I think, about a dozen cities as uh, partners now. And I think there's about six more that are in some stage of joining. So it's growing quite rapidly. And uh, what it consists of is uh, a protocol, I guess you could say, a procedure for studying urban wildlife using remote cameras. So by sharing a procedure for how we do that, um, 
the network hopes to be able to share information across cities on what it is that we're finding. Because it uses remote cameras, uh, the kind of information we're hoping to detect is the, the presence of particular species, what species live in a city, and their distribution from where these cameras are placed. Do they occur on all the cameras, some of the cameras, cameras close to the urban center or far from it, in association with particular kinds of urban features or not? And also the time of those detections. So those sort of three pieces of information. What's there? Where is it? And when is it there? And for the last piece, time, you can think of that as being, um, you know, over years. So we might detect the arrival of a new species in Edmonton. Or among seasons, we might have a very different um, use of these sites by uh, different species in summer versus winter in a latitude like ours. And also times of the day. So we hope to learn a lot about, uh, for example, some wary species. Do they occur on these cameras only at night? People never know they're there because they never occur during the day or at times when people are using those locations. So when we put all that together for our city and other cities, we'll be able to, I think, draw some conclusions about, at least tentative ones, about how species use urban areas, how that varies uh, across space and time, whether there's some common things emerging, and uh, we sort of expect that. For example, I was interested in joining this project partly because I think we're about to receive raccoons in Edmonton and probably gray squirrels as well. And I'd like to know, where, where do they start occurring first? Um, how, how prevalent are they when they first arrive? How long does it take for them to establish? Um, those are species that have been detected in Edmonton occasionally, but not known to, to overwinter here. And, and since they are already in nearby cities, um, that's why I think it's likely that they're going to arrive. Do you think that there is... Uh is, sorry, is there any changes that you've seen so far? Like, is there anything that surprised you, what you expected to see through this project and what you've seen so far? Yeah, well, let me tell you a couple of the early results. So we joined the project only this spring, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the standardized parts of the protocol is to monitor wildlife for four months of the year. April, well, starting at the beginning, I guess, January, April, July, and October. So although we got our cameras up and working um, in May, it, it wasn't until uh, July that we sort of had an opportunity to join an official monitoring month. And in that month, we detected a couple of species in places that, that sort of surprised us. Um, for example, there was a, a deer in an, in an urban park quite close to the university that's just a, a park with mowed grass and a few scattered trees Mm -hmm. <laughs> quite a long way from the river valley where you just wouldn't expect to see a deer at least I wouldn't have uh, but it was at night and uh, another kind of unexpected detection was uh, not far from there on south campus um, the university split into a north and a south campus the south campus is pretty low density of development for buildings and st stuff but it's surrounded by high use roads and it's only about six kilometers from the city center, so it's not exactly remote. And we found a moose there, uh, wow. you know, maybe 100 meters from the nearest house, also in the middle of the night. 
So, uh, as we accumulate these images across the whole city, we will have a picture of how wildlife is using the city that um, will complement, not really replace, but complement what people are already observing and reporting. And that's another arena where there's more and more tools for people to be to be sharing what they observe of wildlife. The, the Alberta Biomonitoring Institute has a new tool called NatureLinks, and they're inviting people to share these kinds of records. So when we put these things together, and uh, with the power of, of the internet for sharing them, I think we'll have a much better understanding in future of where wildlife occurs, which wildlife is there, how does the distribution change, how does species composition change over time. So my, my question is, how do we use this information then to better live in, I guess, harmony with the animals in our, yeah. in our urban areas? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Andrew. You've just like hit the nail on the head of why we're doing this. So um, urban areas are kind of an epicenter, if you will, of this phenomenon called human-wildlife conflict. So in the Coyote Project, I've been sort of looking at that for years now in the context of human-coyote conflict, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to study coyotes. I, I wanted to know what kinds of things are people experiencing when they say um, they had an aggressive interaction with a coyote, the coyote was terribly aggressive and frightening. What What is that conflict? What did the coyote do? What did the people do? How do people come to the conclusion that the thing they experienced with wildlife was conflict? I wanted to know that, and then and then secondly, well, what, what could be changed about the way we manage cities or our own perceptions to have more coexistence with wildlife in cities? And I'm interested in that goal because, um, well, a few reasons. The first one is that uh, approaching 80% of the world's population live in cities. So if we're going to have a human population that cares about biodiversity or conservation, it's going to be essential, I think, that they've had the opportunity to, to test those waters, to experience something about nature where they live in cities. So that access to nature, I think, is in, increasingly important, and not just for the goals of conservation, but for the well-being of people as well. That's, that's well documented by lots of folks. A second reason for that uh, interest in coexistence in cities is that uh, quite a bit of research is showing that cities themselves often contain the last big remnants, and this is surprising, they often contain the last big remnants of natural areas representative of the surrounding landscape, um, sometimes in an area with a radius of 100 kilometers or more. So those urban parks, especially the large ones, especially ones like Edmonton has of this river valley, maybe the largest contiguous urban park comprised of natural vegetation in North America, that's actually a really important natural resource of its own. It's a, it's a protected area in its own right that could be contributing to regional biodiversity or biodiversity protection especially connectivity with other protected areas. And maybe a third reason is uh, just kind of a, a mix of those two, that um, if, if we're going to manage this, this planet of ours <laughs> with the other species that we share it with, urban areas provide a pretty good kind of 
mm, test case for, for where we could explore new ways of achieving some coexistence, understanding some of the limits and opportunities and so on. Yeah, I think, I think there's a human yearning to be around wildlife. I know for me, I grew up on a farm just outside of Edmonton in Camrose and uh, heard coyotes every night of my life. I've never had an interaction with a coyote. Never, huh? never. I, that's why I find the interaction conversation very interesting because I'd like to, I'm going to say, I, I've never, I've seen them from time to time, but an actual uh, interaction I've never had. I've never had an aggressive interaction with one ever. But um, I think for me, I know I have a personal need to be around green space and animals whenever I can make that happen. Um, I know people love to have dogs and cats in their home in order to give them that connection to wildlife. And the question is, how do, how do we have more connections to wildlife like that in an urban area without uh, it being a threat to those animals? Mm. Boy, that's another uh, bunch of, of good <laughs> and complex questions. Do you want me to start with your observation about coyotes and sure. how they're just a problem? Um, and then I'll try to tie that back to some of these broader themes about kind of human relationships with wildlife and how those might be changing. So lots of folks who grew up on, on farms or in rural areas have told me that, like, what is with these urban coyotes? Like, if you saw a coyote at all on the farm, it was like fleeting, it was across a field, or it was running away from you. And uh, the same used to be true of black bears, and, uh, you know, quite a few other species that have become emboldened recently. And the, the usual explanation um, that people offer, and, and I think there's some truth to it, it makes sense to me, is that you know, we're exiting an era when predators of every sort, even little somewhat harmless predators like coyotes were, were persecuted really actively. They were shot on sight. And, and coyotes aren't that harmless. If you farm sheep, for example, they really can do a number on your livelihood. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to understand the perspective of somebody who makes their, their living um, with animals that coyotes like to eat, not liking coyotes, and, and practicing some sort of preemptive management to keep that population uh, size modest and maybe more importantly, to keep those animals very wary around people. They they were being taught in a daily way, don't trust people. Yeah. If they get a chance, they will kill you. Yeah. And uh, I'm actually trying to bring something of that sentiment into coyote management in urban areas, speaking to city managers in both Edmonton and Calgary about it. And they're receptive, using a technique called aversive conditioning. The idea there is to have a, a group of trained professionals who go to sites where there's reports, recurrent reports of very aggressive coyotes, and try to find those animals and then shoot them. Mm. Not with a 22, with a paintball gun, with clay yeah. balls or rubber bullets in it. And teach those animals, don't trust people. They will yeah. try to hurt you. And it's early days, but uh, they've just rolled it out in both Calgary and Edmonton this past spring, and um, more opportunities for events in Calgary, but it, it sounded pretty promising to me, and, and that will be likely a story that's forthcoming. They've tried to do the same thing in Denver, and uh, with some promising results there as well. So that might become an important tool for urban wildlife and then, if I could, I'll circle back to how that yeah. could tie into this thing of, you know, like, how do we have it all? How do we have our cake and eat it, too? How can we have wildlife in the city that contributes all these things that people value, 
So that's not just our enjoyment. People like you and I who just need to be around nature, we know that about ourselves and we seek it out. But it's been argued that that's true for all humans, whether or not they've sort of noticed that, that it has uh, huge health benefits to be in nature or have access to nature. But at the same reasonable uh, perspective to have and, and one that needs to be respected, that, that people don't want to have to worry for the safety of themselves or, or especially their children. Um, there's been some cases now just this last year of children being attacked by coyotes in their own yards. That's a kind of behavior that, uh, that wasn't here in Edmonton, incidentally, that was Vancouver. That's a kind of behavior that no one can be blamed for finding intolerable, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So how can we uh, have wildlife that doesn't impose that kind of feeling of threat on people concerning their children or more often their pets? Well, I think it'll take a multi-pronged approach. We'll have to have uh, some kind of common understanding of what a conflict is and what uh, reasonable precautions for one's own safety look like. And then we would have to have more tools, I think, between those two extremes of like shoot it on sight or tolerate everything it does. Yeah, it's hard to find that balance and, and some some people want to say like, oh, we can never do anything to harm the animal at all. Some people go the other end. It's the, well, we just got to get rid of them. No, we have to find a way to have a, you know, harmony with the animals that are around us. And we are sort of, you know, in de facto in charge of managing that harmony. Just, uh, um, yeah, like uh, my dad always said that the coyotes were more afraid of us than we are of them, but that seems to have kind of gone away uh, a little bit with them. And also with bears, uh, After I, I'm in Fort McMurray now, uh, yeah. and during the Fort McMurray fire, uh, the bears got a lot more um, friendly after the fire, just be out of the need for food. And they yeah. had to figure out a lot of different ways of of managing those animals. And I think that um, it's uh, it's tough to find that balance. I don't, I don't know. Uh, has there been anything that you've seen that makes finding that balance a little bit easier? Yeah. Well, it's something that I work on as uh, kind of one of the main thrusts of my whole research program, which uh, what I do with my research program, I'm in a biology department studying two topics kind of equally conservation biology that we've been talking about, but the other one is animal behavior. And that's actually where my graduate training is. So what I've been trying to do these 20 odd years is use the techniques, the approaches, the awareness, knowledge of animal behavior, and apply it to conservation and wildlife management in ways that are often overlooked by people that, that trained primarily in wildlife management or conservation. And the reason that there's a really common hole of uh, awareness about behavior and how malleable it is, how helpful it might be in both understanding the problems and the solutions, the reason for that hole is that those disciplines, conservation and management, they focus on populations. And, and so populations don't have a behavior in the same way that individuals have a behavior. And and that emphasis on populations or landscapes or ecosystems, those higher levels of biological organization, I think is one reason that there's been this uh, multi-decade tendency 
to just kind of overlook animal behavior in a way that, um, you know, farmers didn't do <laughs> and uh, hunter-gatherers don't do. Yeah. Animal behavior was critical to your success in those realms. And I think we could bring more of that awareness back. So what would it look like? Well, the aversive conditioning example I, I just gave you is one, if we put that in the in the context of what your dad might have been sharing, like, yeah, they are a lot more afraid of us in that set of circumstances mm. than we are of them because they have this kind of individual knowledge, an individual coyote has this knowledge that it got through its own experiences, but also through the behavior of its family members who had experiences of their own. It becomes kind of a cultural norm not to trust people, don't get too close to them, they cannot be trusted. And so we could turn that dial in lots of different ways on animals. I think that we can think of it as kind of like a commodity, the flexibility that animals have through learning to become um, more habituated to people or less so as a function of their accumulated experience. So back to this aversive conditioning and the possibility that one day we might have maybe neighborhood students who are trained and recognizable individuals who go looking for the neighborhood problem coyotes. And if they find them in the following list of no-go zones, the playground, the schoolyard, da-da-da-da-da, uh, during the day, they, they treat them. Hazing is the term that's often used to, to teach them that they... They can't safely hang out there. They will get harassed and hurt. So back to your bears in Fort McMurray, it was actually there that I first proposed using a paintball gun mm -hmm. on bears when I was uh, working on birds in the oil sands. And there was a bear in our campground every single day. Yeah. And uh, I, I got that idea because I knew that it had been used in Kananaskis at that point for years. So this was 2011, I think, that I proposed this um, to Fish and Wildlife. And... and uh, you know, these things take some time. Kananaskis was a pioneer in this part of the world. I don't know that they invented it, though. But in Kananaskis, they were able to reroute the bear trails around the major campgrounds of Peter Lahi Provincial Park to reduce the conflict that was really frequent at uh, the trailer dump station in particular. Mm -hmm. And uh, taught those bears that they weren't welcome there. They had the bears initially VHF collared and later GPS collared. They monitored them. You know, you can think of a bear prisoner with an ankle bracelet. And when they were near the dump station, as one example of a no-go zone, somebody went out there in a truck and beamed them with a paintball. <laughs> yeah. And taught them in one generation uh, really effectively not to go there, to go different places. And Kananaskis has had some of the highest um, grizzly bear survival rates in the province. And wow. at a period, at a, in a period of time when, when Bath nearby had uh, fairly low rates. Um, as you know, an anecdote suggesting that uh, it makes a difference to the outcome of populations, not just individuals, to, to create this kind of different culture of awareness and uh, that might be achieved through behavior. So back to Fort McMurray, well, gosh, it's been a hard time for you guys up there. Um, you know, you, you got some bad press even before the fires about how many bears are destroyed yep. every year in Fort McMurray. And, and that's a good segue, I think, to the human part of it. So what are these animals doing when they're, you know, in your backyard uh, snooping around or, or other kind of human-dominated places? 
they're just trying to make a living mm-hmm. and uh, they, they've already learned that they can count on humans to provide some, some freebies. So that phenomenon of food conditioning, really well documented in bears and really fatal for bears and, and tragically as, as, uh, as Fort McMurrians know better than others, you know, can be fatal for people too. Yeah, that there, that did happen out on site. Uh, what was it? Yeah. Two years ago, three years ago, that happened to somebody with a bear attack. They were killed by that, and and as I said, there's been an increase in in bear activity. Well, at least it was after the fire. There hasn't been as many reports, but we would get the reports all the time of when you know we frequently have people calling us saying there's a bear on this trail, avoid this trail. There's a bear on this trail, avoid this trail, and that happens yeah. to us all the time um, yeah, up here. Awesome. Absolutely. Uh, more than people would even think of. I tell people the story of that. I had a bear in the back of my Jeep at one point because uh, I was packing up to move out of the one place after the fire to go to another one. And uh, I thought it was somebody in furry boots in the back of my Jeep <laughs> trying to rob me. And no, I got a little closer and there was a bear. And so I clicked the uh, lock on my Jeep and uh, that, you know, the lights flashed and scared her away. I found out it was her after her three little cubs took off behind me to go and meet up with her. And that was a kind of a scary situation for me. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. But then I just called, uh, I called animal control and had them, them pop down and they didn't, uh, um, they didn't really do anything major. They just kind of encouraged her to move on uh, more than anything. She had been spending some time in my neighbor's backyard from what he told me. So yeah. Um, but there's definitely, it's definitely a scary situation, right? Uh, and That's an awesome example, though, Andrew, if I could jump in on it. Yeah, because, absolutely. You know, you didn't, you didn't panic and you did something that uh, kind of alerted the bear to, ooh, ooh, yeah. there's somebody around here after all, and uh, just sort of de-escalated the situation and provided an opportunity to look around, not just your yard, but your maybe your neighbors too, and for fish and wildlife maybe to engage, like, hey, are there any attractants around here? Or, Sometimes it you know takes a while for people to really know what can constitute an attractant for a bear. Like um, lots of people don't realize how attracted they are to bird feeders hmm. or fruit on trees. And then you know really gradually with that kind of dual approach, um, the culture of both can change. So I was in Bellacoola recently um, checking out a potential bear project of the future, and that's in the central BC coast, grizzly bear country. And there are bears in people's yards there all the time. And that's just become kind of normal for mm-hmm. people. It wasn't normal. A uh, hundred years ago when that valley was being settled, it was, you know, the same attitude towards bears as there was towards coyotes around cameras when you were growing up. Like, shoot them. <laughs> we don't want yeah. those guys eating the chickens or the sheep or the kids. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they've really... Um, Coyotes and black bears have really rapid rates of of natural increase. They can their populations can rebound from that really quickly. Grizzly bears a little less so. So after all of that um, removal, uh, you know, in that pioneer era, it took a long time for grizzly bears to populations to rebound. But they are now, and um, and people are trying to approach them with quite a different attitude. There's a very high standard of um, responsibility for residents of Bella Coola to be taking care of their own attractants, making sure they're not inviting bears into their yard and endangering their neighbors as well as the bears. And then most amazingly, there were these signs up in the provincial park, Tweedsmere up the road, um, declaring that um, bears have the right of way. 
Yeah. If you're here in this known bear fishing area, and people do go there partly just to watch the bears, it, it's up to you to get out of the way of the bear. If there's a yeah. bear coming towards you, get out of its way. And, oh, by the way, try to be careful and be safe. Bears are unpredictable. <laughs> but it was a really different message than the one we're used to where we have this kind of, like, I don't know, uh, maybe unstated assumption that uh, if a if a grizzly bear is in a place where humans are, that's that's just a terribly bad and unsafe situation. So even in the course of uh, you know a few years or a couple of decades, those those attitudes can can swing quite widely for people. Yeah. Well, I think I, I always try to remember that they were there first. <laughs> we came into yeah. their party; they didn't come into ours, right? Well, that's another really cool thing. Uh, circling back to the urban wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it could be argued in in cities and some particular species that we were here first. So there's this phenomenon of urban exploiters, as they're known, and mm-hmm. coyotes are one. You know, pigeons are another. Probably anyone who's listening would be able to like rattle off a few species they can think of that are urban exploiters. They actually seem to be more abundant in urban areas than non-urban areas, and they have no trouble coping with people and exploiting their stuff. Ravens, the ravens, the ravens in Fort McMurray. For oh, I call them the trash turkeys because they're yeah. the they're, they've become the size of turkeys. They're huge they, because that's all they do is eat garbage all day. They're massive up here. Yeah, and you know, there's probably some really interesting physiology to study there because they might not be the healthiest. No, of, I don't think of so. The ravens around. So one of the things we're studying now in, in coyotes is what does it do to animals to eat all this human food? Mm. Does it change their behavior, not just through this direct way of food conditioning, but we're, we're trying to see, does it change their behavior through their gut microbiome? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of cool. You've maybe been hearing about this in people that, uh, you know, the changes to our gut microbiome, just all of the, the fungi and especially bacteria that live in our gut. Our, our intestines, that, that those have their own whole ecosystem. And as the relative frequency of some things increases and other things declines, it affects us in all kinds of ways, you know, mm-hmm. leaky gut and food intolerances, but also things like anxiety and depression and ADHD and autism are being associated and rheumatoid arthritis, they're being associated with the composition of the gut. So if that can happen in people, and it's known to be linked to diet and especially processed food, high sugar foods, uh, too much carbohydrates relative to proteins, certain kinds of proteins. Why wouldn't it happen in animals too, like the geese being fed breadcrumbs Mm -hmm. that seem to get more and more aggressive, (laughs) or the coyotes that are getting into garbage and compost, or the ravens that are eating a lot of garbage. So uh, in a few years, we should know a little bit more about that microbiome connection, but there's one that's even more intriguing for the coyotes, which is parasites. And this has now been shown for quite a few urban species that access to human food in urban areas is changing their parasite composition as well. In coyotes, there's one called, uh, it's a tapeworm, it's called a Kinococcus multilocularis. That's kind of scary because um, there's sort of two views about it. One is that it's always been here and no big deal, you know, it, it goes in a natural cycle and, you know, all works out. Another, that the particular strain of this parasite that's being detected now is actually a pretty recent arrival from Asia, probably came over with dogs. And that it's a lot more virulent than the 
than the native form of it. And in Asia, it's suspected to kill hundreds, maybe thousands of people every year. Wow. And there have been now nine cases of this parasite detected as cysts in people. So people aren't a very good host for this parasite. If people get it, um, the parasite just tries to find a good good home in the body and doesn't really succeed, but makes a mess of your liver in the process. In uh, coyotes, it doesn't cause any ill effects at all. They don't seem bothered by this parasite at all. It's a tiny little tapeworm. They can have hundreds in their guts and not seem to be remotely bothered by it. it sort of makes sense, you know, because it's a tiny tapeworm and they're pretty big animals. But what it might do is change their behavior to make them hungrier and more carnivorous. Wow. So another idea we're trying to explore right now in this urban coyote project is to determine whether or not this parasite is more prevalent in animals that are deemed to be kind of hyper-aggressive. And it's super early days, but we had two very aggressive coyotes in Edmonton over the last year that were both killed um, intentionally, so mm -hmm. lethal management because these animals were so aggressive. And they both came back. The uh, study of their intestines revealed that they both had hundreds of these tapeworms. Wow. So it's a little bit of a smoking gun. Nothing to get alarmed about or, yeah. or uh, you know, run out and kill all the coyotes over. But just an indication of something we might be really underestimating about our urban wildlife and our globalizing wildlife. So on that same tact, I'm always really surprised when I hear about, uh, like, animal rescue that uh, brings dogs, say, from really disadvantaged places like uh, islands in the Caribbean mm -hmm. for rescue in, you know, Edmonton say, I, yeah. I see the really noble intentions of helping these, uh, these desperate animals, but I wonder how well any of us know what the long reach of some of these actions might be. Well, and yeah. what they might be bringing on their fur, what they might be have inside them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So this is kind of a, I'm not a parasitologist at all. But I can't help being fascinated by this uh, particular connection with the urban coyotes. And, and others are studying these same phenomena in other urban uh, wildlife. Um, for example, there's already been a study published, or at least it was a conference proceeding, of the microbiome changes in raccoons that are eating garbage. And lots of people have shown that parasites change the behavior of their hosts. So back to this information network and what we like hope to learn from these cameras. Well, you know, step one will be figuring out where where the animals are um, in a way that complements what people observe and, and report to us. I have a website where people can report that. It's got about 4,000 records on it, and that's been super helpful. We've also put GPS collars on coyotes previously, and that was super informative too. But what I love about these uh, cameras is that they have the potential to detect stuff that we change just by our presence. Mm -hmm. Animals definitely act differently, we think. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like that famous physics experiment. We think they act differently when we're watching them, but it's very hard for us to know unless we have a, something that watches for us, like cameras. Mm -hmm. And uh, collars, I think... Um, they can have some pretty pronounced effects on behavior too that are hard to study. Really, like when they, when animals are collared for for research, then does that do they find that that makes a difference in what they what comes back? 
Well, it really, the answer to that question would depend on who you ask. So there have been some studies that have tried to figure that out, and and that's good. There should be before we, um, you know, just assume there's no effects. Mm -hmm. They're a bit divided. Some studies find effects, others do not. But uh, maybe I'll name a couple of uh, just anecdotes that could give you or your listeners a chance to kind of decide for themselves. Mm -hmm. So the first anecdote is, uh, um, well, not an anecdote, first a guideline. The guideline for the amount of weight you can put on an animal as a radio tag is that you should be under 5%. So um, under 5%, well, what is that? Calculate it for your own body weight. So, you know, for me, that is, uh, you know, eight pounds or something. I, I can barely stand wearing um, any of the quite beautiful stone necklaces I've been given over the years yeah. that might weigh, um, they might weigh as much as 50 grams. Yeah. I just don't like having weight around my neck. The thought of wearing 13 pounds around my neck, no, it's not that much, eight, what did I say, eight? Eight pounds, yeah. See, I weigh 135 pounds, so you can work up the yeah. <laughs> arithmetic, but I know that I could not carry a five-pound bag of sugar around my neck without it having a serious effect on my behavior. And that's as a bipedal animal. If I were, uh, you know, walking around on all fours where the gravitational pull is straight down, mm -hmm. um, I would think it would be even worse. Now, an anecdote of a similar sort, you know, when I studied penguins at, in the 1990s, lots of people asserted that putting a flipper band, a little metal band on the flipper of a penguin to identify it was trivial. It had absolutely no effect on its ability to swim or on its survival. And the people who studied that did so by saying, you know, look how many penguins came back this year, nearly the whole lot. And again, the next year, well, that isn't really a rigorous test of the effect. So, so some mm -hmm. German researchers put penguins with flipper bands and then with and without flipper bands in these sort of like high flow special laboratory tanks. And they measured their energetics and heart rates to show, yes, there is a measurable reduction. I don't remember the percentage in their swimming efficiency and the energetic cost of swimming with a flipper tag. And then a few years later, Somebody put transponders, little pit tags like you uh, might inject in your pet mm -hmm. for, uh, you know, detecting it when it gets picked up by the pound in the necks of penguins. And then over many years and hundreds of animals, they did a really thorough study of the effect of flipper bands. And flipper bands were banned shortly thereafter. It was absolutely unequivocal. Really? Huh. Small effect over thousands of birds and many years is not small anymore. No, absolutely. And... Uh evolution took a long time to get that penguin perfected. You know? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> throwing a change in there, it's not really up for us to do too much. Yeah. Oh, so wow. for 20 odd coyotes wearing collars, it'd be really hard for us to know what, if any effect the collars had on them. But I just am kind of increasingly drawn at this stage of my career to the less invasive techniques, mm -hmm. wanting to find out how much can we learn with these less invasive techniques. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of fun, too. Another of my favorite non-invasive techniques is scat. So I always say to my students, you know, never step over a scat. That's data. Data there, <laughs> lying there under your feet. Never step over it. Pick it up. Put it in a bag. If it's coyote scat, be appropriately careful with it because you don't want to get that parasite. Yeah, well, no. Ugh, parasites. It freaks me out. Um, we're getting close to... Uh... Uh, 45 minutes here so I'll, I'll ask a couple of last last questions um sorry andrew can i'm afraid that's my dog going off at the, the doorbell downstairs no worries. Else will do it. 
<laughs> there we go. Um, another interruption here soon, but we'll just like cut and start if we need no to. Um, what do you hope to see in the outcome of this study? Yeah, well, wrapping all this up and returning to the UN study with the cameras, what mm. do I hope to find? I hope we will establish a way of monitoring wildlife in Edmonton that can be carried on, if desired by others, into the future and tell us some things about wildlife in Edmonton that we didn't know before that might be compared to other cities to tell us things about our city in relation to other urban areas that we didn't know before and, and maybe wouldn't know without this kind of comparative standardized opportunity. In the long game, what I hope we'll do with this information, not just us here in Edmonton, but with all of the partners and, and with everybody that's interested in, in urban wildlife, is create the kind of information that would make it possible to increase rates of coexistence with wildlife that support um, ecological outcomes that, that are better for everybody. So that sounds a bit uh, subjective, I realize, but I guess part of what I'm saying is that just having a certain number of animals in a city isn't necessarily what we're aiming at, not even a certain number of species. What we really want, if we want to help to protect biodiversity with cities, is something that's representative of the natural environment before it was a city. And so we need to keep track of those urban exploiting species and the urban avoiding species and try to balance those somehow in the way we use this information, altering wildlife management or people management to try to maximize ecosystem functions that provide the aesthetic and the ecosystem services that we enjoy and, and minimize the, the downsides of uh, exposure to uh, I don't know, zoonotic parasites, for example. Yeah, no parasites. The whole idea of parasites just makes me wildly <laughs> I'm not uncomfortable. We need to get rid of coyotes. I think yeah. it can all be managed. We just need to be more. Oh, no, I love coyotes. I love coyotes. We don't want to get rid of them. I just don't want parasites. No parasites. <laughs> um, what would your advice be to the average person uh, encountering wildlife in major cities like Edmonton? I suppose I, I, I would try not to give something too much resembling advice, more of an invitation to mm -hmm. just uh, notice stuff about wildlife. Try to notice when things are changing. Is it something I've seen before? Have I seen it act this way before? How do I feel about what I'm seeing? Is it enjoyable to me? Does it maybe provide some kind of service that's useful? Like, like gee, who does eat all those mice that our composts produce? Or who does take a bit of care of those geese that are increasing everywhere. You know, you could think of coyotes in some new ways that way, but the same is true for every other species. So I suppose what I'd say is, you know, invite curiosity for your own benefit and um, the ecosystem around you in your urban area and for greater greater health and, and um, enjoyment in future. And is there anything you would recommend for people to read, watch, listen to, uh, to kind of help them with a better understanding of wildlife in urban areas? Sure. Um, 
Well, gosh, where to start? I'll try to touch on a few of our themes from the conversation. <laughs> so I mentioned earlier that the need for time in natural areas is better and better documented. But the person who's done a really good job of exploring that, especially for children, is Richard Louvre. He wrote the book Last Child in the Woods and coined the term nature deficit disorder. And it's a fascinating series of ideas. There's been a lot of take up on it since. So you could Google that term and, and mm -hmm. see some of the stuff that's come out since that book, including another one by that author. The concept of ecosystem services is another thing that one could Google to start learning something about all the ways that natural areas in cities actually contribute to the well-being of people in ways that go beyond kind of aesthetic enjoyment or, or calming our, our ADD, and, you know, the, the, the cleaning of our air and our water and the purifying of our wetlands, our, our soil, the nutrient cycling, all these things we take for granted because we don't pay for them. But our city would be a much less healthy place without our natural areas. So ecosystem services might be a key term for that. And then if a person is interested in biodiversity, um, as kind of a hobby or to contribute to monitoring, there are more and more good tools for that. So this new tool from the Alberta Biomonitoring um, Institute, ABMI, is called Nature Links. Um, and Links is spelt unexpectedly L-Y-N-X, like the animal. Mm -hmm. So Nature Links is a platform that's being rolled out now. It's been in the media a little bit, and I think it will soon be province-wide in its scope. But uh, I have a meeting tomorrow, actually, to talk to these folks in the city of Edmonton about how we might try to increase its use in Edmonton in particular. There will be more and more of those kinds of tools for people to get engaged and to record their own observations of wildlife, contributing to this uh, sort of society-wide understanding of what we have and where it is. Well, don't tell my dad there's some place he can put his pictures of birds because he'll start taking more pictures of birds and That's then I'll awesome. have to be seeing them for days. Oh, he absolutely loves it. He could take wow. like 60 photos of the exact same bird and then show me all of them. <laughs> that is so great. Well, uh, as part of our, our camera project, we are definitely looking for volunteers to, uh, to help us go through the photos we're generating, which are, it's a lot of photos. <laughs> I would say, yeah. So, and ours is not the only one. Uh, there's one in Calgary called Calgary Captured, and mm -hmm. uh, they already have quite a large cadre of citizen scientists that are helping to wow. plow through those photos. And, oh, gee, Andrew, it's probably just a matter of time, maybe weeks away, that you start one in Fort McMurray because you guys have some great wildlife. Absolutely. I think it would be great for there to be someone to start one up here in Fort McMurray. <laughs> I think that would be... Uh, I, I, I think that would be great because you're right. There is a lot of incredible wildlife up here and we're very close to it from pretty much every angle because each community has its own little surrounding wilderness and that's changing and recovering right now in different ways. So I think there'd be a lot to observe up here. Uh, absolutely. Here's one question. It's more of a fun question. What are your odds on a Sasquatch showing up in your photos? Huh? Well, uh, this may surprise you, Andrew, but you are not the first one to ask about Sasquatches. So uh, I would say the odds based on evidence are zero. Oh, heartbreaking. Yeah. But um, so zero to infinity, I guess, is the way I'd have to express the odds. Like just the odds ratio is that bad. Yeah. But um, I think we do have a really good chance of figuring out 
why people sometimes think they see Sasquatches. And, and my, my, my chief example of something that might look like a Sasquatch would be a moose. So when a moose comes right up to your camera and it kind of like angles its head a bit and you have this sort of dewlap flopping towards the camera, like mm. maybe it doesn't look like a Sasquatch, but it certainly doesn't look like a moose either. So, you know, we might have a Sasquatch looking animal. Would that, would that qualify? Well, n- <laughs> no, I, I'm looking for the missing link here. It's the one thing, it's the one like big myth thing that I go, there could be an odd, it's just a possibility. If you've ever driven through like Northern Alberta, BC for a while, you just go and you look around and you go, yeah, a Sasquatch could hide here. I don't know how anyone would be lost in the trees of Seattle, but in that Northern Alberta woods, I go, there's gotta be an odds possibility that some, that it could have happened. And if it did exist, it would have had to have been something that crossed the land bridge after the Ice Age and then found its way. Then Alaska and northern Alberta, I think there's got to be odds, if it was. I think, you know, they found a, a cave bear skeleton recently. And, and aren't cave bears uh, reputed to have been the Sasquatch? Been the Sasquatch? Maybe. Yeah, I think I've heard that. So, you know, maybe you didn't specify that the Sasquatch had to be alive. So if we're talking fa- fossil Sasquatches. We got better odds? Better odds. We better start <laughs> pointing those cameras a little more down than we have been. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Colleen, for your time. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. I honestly could probably talk to you for an hour just about coyotes and uh, because I find them to be an incredibly fascinating animal, and that's cool that you're doing so much research with them. Uh, Maybe we can do a follow-up in a little while with the project and see how it's going. So once again, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be on the podcast with me uh, today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome, Andrew. Thank you for your interest and to your listeners too.